18. Words, that federation of those British communities widely separated by geography, but alike in race, language, laws, principles, has always attracted him as a project of excellent intentions. It is at worst a noble dream. That dream has become less impracticable than it was formerly. He thinks, by reason of the essential diminution of the world, diminution of distances and of time by latter-day inventions, against the idea of general representation in a central parliament at London, Sir Wilfrid Plant doubt that Edmund Burke objected, a pursuit natura, nature forbade it. The wisest of political philosophers could not foresee the telegraph, wireless, steam, airships. These have made a full central imperial parliament at least conceivable. Could it be more full than the advisory council, or imperial conference which has become quadrennial, and might possibly become annual? That is matter for discussion. Sir Wilfrid said that such is the political genius of the British race that he would be rash who alleged any design impracticable toward which the race may tend so generally as to put it under discussion for arrangement of details. Conservation of local self-government, prime essential to agreement for union on common purposes, might prove reconcilable with federated defense, but their island to Sir Wilfrid's way of thinking, one large objection against now attempting imperial federation. Its agitators contemplate a scheme immense, yet not sufficiently inclusive. They do not contemplate English-speaking solidarity. They purpose leaving out the majority of English speakers the American people. In this they do not follow Cecil Rhodes, a chief propagandist of their main design. It is true that the idea of getting Americans to participate in any formal union with all the rest of their brethren by race and tongue seems now impractical. But time works wonders. Mr. Gladstone foresaw the United States a people of 600 comfortable millions, living in union before the end of the next century. The hegemony of the English-speaking nations seems likely to be within attainment by that one of them which appears destined to become far the most powerful of all in numbers, in wealth, and in security of environment. Time may show to our successors in this world some effective method of establishing agreements amounting to that solidarity for English-speaking action which has been acclaimed as existent for English-speaking thinking by a mind so eminently reasonable as that of Lord Haldane. It would be hasty, thinks Sir Wilfrid, and it might be injurious for the British countries to move toward any sort of formal union ostensibly tending to set them collectively apart from the United States. Give great beneficent ideas time to develop. Britons can well afford to take their time, since the war has shown existent among them an almost perfect union of sentiment and purpose, and this, apparently, with the blessed effect of enhancing general American goodwill to Britons, from so much good understanding more may ensue, Sir Wilfrid concluded, such Canadians as hold Edmund Burke to have been a spokesman of consummate political wisdom are apt to regard the busy stir of doctrinaires, who scream for closer political junction of the British peoples even as Burke regarded the hurry of some of the same kidney in his time, resolute to bind the thirteen colonies forever to England, they proceeded to offend, outrage, and drive those colonies to independence, be it remembered that these colonies had contributed so loyally, so liberally to England's armaments and wars that grateful London parliaments had insisted on voting back to them the subsidies they had granted, holding the contributions to generous, to a later proposals a foolish henchman of George III proposals that the colonies, since they had revealed themselves as strong and rich, should be dragged into some formal political subordination by which, as by latter-day imperial federation, they might be involuntarily mustered and taxed for imperial purposes. Burke said, our hold on the colonies is the close affection which grows from common names, 
from kindred blood, from similar privileges, and equal protection. These are the ties which, though light as air, are strong as links of iron. Let the colonies always keep the idea of their civil rights associated with your government, they will cling and grapple to you, and no force under heaven will be of power to tear them from their allegiance. As long as you have the wisdom to keep the sovereign authority of this country as the sanctuary of liberty, the sacred temple consecrated to our common faith, wherever the chosen race and sons of England worship freedom, they will turn their faces toward you. The more they multiply, the more friends you will have, the more ardently they love liberty, the more perfect will be their obedience. Slavery they can have anywhere, it is a weed that grows on every soil. They may have it from Spain, they may have it from Prussia, but until you become lost to all feeling of your true interest and your natural dignity, freedom they can have from none but you. This is the commodity of price, of which you have the monopoly. Do not entertain so weak an imagination as that your registers and your bonds, your affidavits and your sufferances, your letters of office and your instructions and your suspending clauses are the things that hold together the great contexture of this mysterious whole. These things do not make your government, that instruments, passive tools as they are. It is the spirit of the English communion that gives all their life and efficacy to them. It is the spirit of the English constitution which, infused through the mighty mass, pervades, feeds, unites, invigorates, vivifies every part of the empire, even to the minutest member, and the doctrinaires of centralization, vociferating their fat of imperial federation, would have that constitution, in the moment of its supreme triumph for unity, cast away, cast away for a new and written one by which Great Britain and all her children alike would chain themselves together, well may practical statesmen view the doctrinaires with some disdain, not in mindful of Burke's immortal scorn of such formalists, a sort of people who think that nothing exists but what is gross and material, and who, therefore, far from being qualified to be directors of the great movement of empire, are not fit to turn a wheel in the machine, to men truly initiated and rightly taught, those ruling and master principles which, in the opinion of such men as I had mentioned, had no substantial existence, are in truth everything and all in all. Magnanimity in politics is not seldom the truest wisdom, and a great empire and little minds go ill together. England, by John E. D. Lesson, birth land of statesmen, bards, heroes, and sages, mother of nations the homes of the free, builder of work that will last through the ages. Hope for humanity centers in thee. Now that thy bugles their clear calls are shrilling, now that thy battle voice echoes worldwide. Or the long reaches of sea rush the willing sons of thy children to fight by thy side, eager to aid thee with treasure and tissue. Other leal millions will come to thy call. Civilization is staked on the issue of O to mankind if thy lion should fall. Fall he will never, till English force slacken in the great soul of thy dominant race. Now, as of old, do the destinies beckon thee to be highest in power and place. Conflicts now raging will pass into story. Nations may sink in defeat or disgrace. Long be thy future resplendent with glory. Long be thy triumphs the pride of our race. American Aid of France by Eugene Bria from the New York Times. April, 1915. M. Eugene Bria, the celebrated French poet and playwright, who was in this country as the official representative of the French Academy the Forty Immortals, has written a remarkable tribute to American Aid of France during the present war. The address, which is herewith presented, 
was read by Andrea at the residence of Mrs. John Henry Hammond of New York City recently before a gathering of 200 men and women who have been interested in the work of the American Ambulance Hospital in Paris. Miss Marie Van Voorst, who nursed the wounded at the American Ambulance in Paris, will speak to you of it as an eyewitness. From her you will receive direct news of your splendid work of humanity. While she was caring for wounded French, English, and German I was attached to another hospital at Chartres. It happens, therefore, that I have never seen the American military hospital created by you, but I am not in ignorance concerning it any more than any other Parisian, any more, indeed, than the majority of the French people. I know that the American ambulance is the most remarkable hospital that the world has seen. I know that you, since the beginning of the war, have brought the aid of medical science to a wounded men and that you have given not only money, but an institution, already, complete and of the most modern type, and, even more, that you have sent there your best surgeons and a small army of orderlies and nurses, I know that at first one could not find a place, that there was available only a building in course of construction, intended to be the pastoral school at Noily, this building was far from completion, it lacked doors and there were no stairs, I know that in three weeks your generosity, your energy, and your quick intelligence has made of this uncertain shell a modern military hospital, with white walls, electric light, baths, rooms for administering anesthetics, operating rooms, sterilizing plants, apparatus for x-rays, and a dental clinic. I know that automobiles, admirably adapted to the service, carried the wounded, and yet I do not know all. I know only my instinct of the devotion of your young girls, of your women, and of your young men, belonging often to prominent families, who served as stretcher-bearers and orderlies. I am not ignorant of the fact that they count by the hundreds those who have been cured at the American Ambulance at Noily, nor of the further fact that the rate of mortality is extremely low, although they have sent you those most gravely injured. I know that it is all free, that there are no charges made for the expenses of administration that for the service rendered by your people there is no claim, and that every cent of every dollar subscribed goes entirely and directly to the care of the wounded. I know also that the expenses at the hospital are 4.000 a day, and that ever since the beginning your charity has met this demand. Such splendid effort has not been ignored or misunderstood. The President of the French Republic has cabled to President Wilson his appreciation and his gratitude, General Thievire. Inspector General of Hospitals of the French Army, has publicly expressed his admiration, the English physicians and public men have shared their sentiments, as to the people of Paris, as to the French nation, they have been touched to the depths of their being, and yet in France we have found all this quite natural, I shall tell you why, we have so high a regard for you that when you do anything well no one is surprised, I believe that if a wounded soldier arriving at your hospital exclaimed, this is wonderful. His comrade who had been ahead of him would answer in a tone of admonition, that surprises you. You do not know then that it is done by the Americans, by the people from the United States, in this refusal to be astonished in the face of remarkable achievements. When they come from you, there is a tribute, a praise of high quality which your feelings and your patriotism will know how to appreciate. I have said that all that comes from you which is good and great seems natural to us, and I have given you a reason, but there is another. In France we are accustomed to consider the Republic of the United States as an affectionate, distant sister. When one receives a gift from a stranger one is astonished and cries out his thanks. But when the gift comes from a brother or from someone who, on similar occasions, has never failed, 
be thanks are not so outspoken but more profound, one says, ah, it is you, my brother, I suffer, I expected you, I knew that you would come, for I should have gone to you had you needed me, I thank you, and, indeed, we are closely bound together, you and we, without doubt, common interest and in absence of possible competition helps to that end, but there is something more which unites us it is our kindred sentiments, it is the skinship which has created our attraction for each other and which has cemented it, it is our common ground of affections, of hatreds, of hopes, our ideals rest upon the same high plane, to mention but one point, one of you has said, the United States and France are the only two nations which have thought for an ideal, and it is that which separates us, you and us, from a certain other nation, and which has served to bring us too close together, we love you and we are grateful for what you are doing for us, when the day came for my departure from France to represent here the French Academy I asked of Mr. Poincaré, who had visited the American ambulance at Noily, if duty did not forbid me to go, Mumber, he said to me, go to the United States, carry greetings to the great nation of America, and he gave to me, for your president, the letter with which you are familiar, where he expressed the admiration and the sympathy that he has for you. I have been traveling north and south in the eastern part of the United States. I have had many opportunities to admire your power and the extent of your efforts. Today, in thinking of the American Ambulance Hospital in Paris, I admire your persistence in labor. You have established this hospital. That was good, but it costs a thousand dollars a day. And yet you keep on with the work. That is doubly good, indeed. One can understand that you have not been willing, after having created this model hospital, that someday through lack of support its doors should close and the wounded you have taken and be turned over to others, certainly those first subscribers undertook a sort of moral obligation to themselves not to permit the work to fail, but, nonetheless, it is admirable that it should be so, to give once is something, but it is little if one compares the value of the first gift to those which follow, the first charity is easily understood. Suddenly war is at hand, its horrors can be imagined and everyone feels that he can in some measure lessen them, and he opens his purse, then time passes, the war continues, and one becomes accustomed to the thoughts that were at first unbearable it is so far away and so long, others in this way were checked after their first impulse, but you, you had thought that, if it is good to establish a hospital, that alone was not enough, and that each day would bring new wounded to replace those who, cured took up their guns again and returned to the field of battle, and since at the American ambulance the wounded are cured quickly, the very excellence of your organization, the science of your surgeons, and the greatness of your sacrifices all bring upon you other and new sacrifices to be made, but the word, sacrifice, is badly chosen, you do not make sacrifices, for you are strong and you are good, when you decide upon some new generous act you have only to appeal to your national pride, which will never allow an American undertaking to fail, you have the knowledge of the good that you are doing, and that, for you, is sufficient, you know that, thanks to your generosity, suffering is relieved, and you know that, thanks to the science of your surgeons, this relief is not merely momentary, but that the wounded man who would have remained a cripple if he had been less ably cared for, will be, thanks to you, completely cured, and that, instead of dragging out a miserable existence, he will be able to live a normal life and support a family which will bless you. Such men will owe it all to the persistence of your generosity. I return always to that point, and it is essential, to give once as a common impulse, 
common to nearly all the world. It means freeing oneself from the suffering which good souls feel when they see others suffer, but to give again after having given is a proof of reflection, of an understanding of the meaning of life, it is to work intelligently, it is to ensure the value of the first effort, it means the possession of goodness which is lasting and far-seeing, that is a rare virtue, you have it, and that is why I express a threefold thanks, for the past, for the present, and for the future thanks that come from the bottom of the heart of a Frenchman. A farewell, I had not need, look, love, I lay my wistful hands in thine a little while before you seek the dark, and traversed ways of war and its reward, I cannot bear to lift my gaze and mark the gloried light of hopeful, high and prize that, like a bird already poised for flight, has waked within your eyes, for me no proud illusions point the road, no fancied flowers strew the paths of strife, or only wears a horrid, hydra face, mocking at strength and courage. Youth and life, if you were going forth to cross your sword in fair and open, man to man affray, one might be even reconciled and say, this is not murder, only passion bent on pouring out its poison, one could pray that the day's end might see the madness done and saner souls rise with the morrow's sun, but this incarnate hell that yawns before your bright, brave soul keyed to the fighters clench this purgatory that men call the trench, this modern, black hole, of a modern war, yea, love. Yet naught I say can save you. So I lay my heart in yours and let you go. Stories of French Courage by Edwin L. Schumann from the New York Times. April, 1915. There has just appeared in Paris a book called, La Guerre Wade in Ambulance, which brings the war closer to the eye and heart than anything else I have read. It is written by Abbe Felix Klein, chaplain of the American Ambulance Hospital at Noilly, a suburb of Paris and has the added merit of describing the noble work which American money and American Red Cross nurses are doing there for the French wounded. The Abbe, by the way, has twice visited the United States in recent years, has many warm friends here, and has written several enthusiastic books about the land of the strenuous life. When the war broke out this large heart priest and busy author dropped all his literary and other plans to minister to the wounded soldiers brought to the war hospital established by Americans in the fine new building of the Lycée Pasteur, which was to have received its first medical students a few weeks later. There were 250 beds at first, and later 500, with more than a hundred American automobiles carrying the wounded to it, often direct from the front. Through all these months Abbe Klein has labored day and night among these sufferers, cheering some to a recovery, easing the dying moments of others with spiritual solace, and, hardest of all, breaking the news of bereavement to parents, from day to day, through those terrible weeks of fighting on the Aisne and the Marne, with Paris itself in danger, the good Abbe wrote brief records of his hopes and fears regarding his wounded friends, and set down in living words the more heroic or touching phases of their simple stories. Let me translate a few of them for the reader. Take, for instance, the case of Charles Murray, a blue-ed, red-bearded hero of thirty years, an only son who had taken the place of his invalid father at the head of their factory, and who had responded to the first call to arms. During his months of suffering his parents were held in territory occupied by the enemy and could not be reached. The abbe goes on to tell his story, let us not be deceived by the calm smile on his face. For six weeks Charles Murray has been undergoing an almost continual martyrdom, his pelvis fractured, with all the consequences one divines, weakened by hemorrhage, his back broken, capable only of moving his head and arms, he is one of our most fervent Christians, I bring him the communion twice a week, and he never complains of suffering, 
he is also one of our bravest soldiers, he has received the military medal, and when I asked him how it came about he told me the following in a firm tone and with his hand in mine, for we are great friends, it was given to me the 8th of October, I had to fulfill a mission that was a little difficult, it was at Mazengarbi, between Bethune and Lenz, and 9 o'clock in the evening, two of the enemy's armored auto machine guns had just been discovered approaching our lines, I was ordered to go and meet them with a Pugiot of 25 or 30 horsepower. I was automobilist in the 30th Dragoons. I left by the little road from Vermils on which the two hostile machines were reported to be approaching. After 20 minutes I stopped, put out my lights, and wait. A quarter of an hour of profound silence followed, and then I caught the sound of the first mitrailleuse. With one spin of the wheel I threw my machine across the middle of the road. That of the enemy struck us squarely in the center. The moment the shock was passed I rose from my seat with my revolver and killed the chauffeur and the mechanician. But almost immediately the second machine gun arrived. The two men on it comprehended what had happened. While one of them stopped the machine, the other aimed at me under his seat and fired a revolver ball that pierced both thighs. Then they turned their machine and retreated. My companion, happily, was not hurt. So he could take me to Vermel's, where the ambulance service was. The same evening they gave me the military medal, for which I had already been proposed three times. After three months of suffering, born without complaint, this man died without having been able to get a word to his parents. The abbey had become deeply attached to him, and the whole hospital corps felt the loss of his courageous presence. Some of the horror of war is in these pages, as where the author says, the doctors worked till three o'clock this morning. They had to amputate arms and legs affected with gangrene. The operating room was a sea of blood, some of the pathos of war is here, and even a little of its humor, but most of all its courage, both of the latter are mingled in the case of an English soldier who was brought in wounded from the field of Swasons, I fought until such a day, when I was wounded, and since then, since then I have traveled, an English infantry officer, a six-footer, brought to the hospital with his head bandaged in red rather than white, showed the abbe his cap and the bullet hole in it. A narrow escape, said the abbe in English, and then learned that the escape was narrower than the wounded for it indicated. Another bullet, without touching the officer, had pierced the sole of his shoe under his foot, and a third had perforated his coat between the body and the arm without breaking the skin. The author's attitude toward the Germans, always free from bitterness, is sufficiently indicated in such a paragraph as this. This afternoon I gave absolution and extreme unction to an Irishman who has not regained consciousness since he was brought here. He had in his portfolio a letter addressed to his mother. The nurse is going to add a word to say that he received the last sacraments. A Christian hope will soften the frightful news. Emperors of Austria and Germany, if you were present when the death is announced in that poor Irish home, and in thousands, hundreds of thousands of others, in England, in France, in Russia, in Serbia, in Belgium, in your own countries, in all Europe, and even in Africa and Asia, may God enlighten your consciences. The French wounded in the hospital at Neuilly during the period when the German right wing was being beaten back from Paris frequently accused the German regulars of wanton cruelty, but testified to the humanity of the reservists. The author relates several episodes illustrating both points. Here are two, the regulars are no good, said a brave peasant reservist. They struck me with the butts of their rifles on my wound. They broke and threw away all that I had. The reserves arrive, and it is different, they take care of me. My comrade, wounded in the breast, 
was dying of thirst, he actually died of it a little while afterward. I dragged myself up to go and seek water for him, the young fellows aimed their guns at me. I was obliged to make a half turn and lie down again. Another, who also begins by praising the German field officers, saw soldiers of the active army stripping perfectly nude one of our men who had a perforated line, and whom they had made prisoner after his wound, when they saw that they would have to abandon him. They took away everything from him, even his shirt, and it was done in pure wickedness, since they carried nothing away. One of the most amazing escapes is that of a soldier from Bordeaux, told partly in his own racy idiom, and fully vouched for by the author. After relating how he left the railway at Nanchoil and traversed a hamlet pillaged by the Germans he continues, we form ourselves into a skirmish line. The shells come, the dirt flies, holes to bury an ox. One can't see them coming, zzz boom. There is time to get out of the way. Arrived at the edge of the woods, we separate as scouts. We are ordered to advance. But, mind you, they already had our range. The artillery makes things hum. My bugler, near me, is killed instantly. He has not said a word. Poor boy. I am wounded in the leg. It is about two o'clock. As I cannot drag myself further, a comrade, before leaving, Hides me under three sheaves of straw with my head under my knapsack. The shells have peppered it full of holes. That poor sack. Without it ten yards away a comrade, who had his leg broken and a piece of shell in his arm, received seven or eight more wounds. I stayed there all day. In the evening the soldiers of the 101st took me into the woods, where there were several French wounded and a German captain. Wounded the evening before. He was suffering too. Poor wretch. About midnight the French soldiers came to seek those who were transportable. They left only my comrade, myself and the German captain. There were other wounded further along, and we heard their cries. It was dreary. These wounded men pass eight two whole days there without help. On the third day the Germans arrived and the narrator gave himself up for lost. But the German captain, with whom the Frenchmen had divided their food and drink, begged that they be cared for. Ultimately they were taken to the German camp and their wounds attended to, but in a few minutes the camp became the center of a violent attack, and again it looked as if the last day of the wounded prisoners had come. Suddenly the Germans ran away and left everything. An hour later, when the firing ceased, they returned, carried away the wounded of both nationalities on stretchers, crowded about twenty-five of them into one wagon the narrator's broken leg was not stretched out, and he suffered and all the way the wagon gave forth the odor of death. All day they rode without a bite to eat. At one o'clock at night they reached the village of Kuvernun, where their wounds were well attended to. The following day the Germans departed without saying a word, but the villagers cared for the wounded, both friends and enemies, and in time the American automobiles carried them to Noily. It is a paradise added the wounded man. Now we are saved, but what things I have seen. I have seen an officer with his brain hanging here over his eye, and black corpses, and bloated horses, the saddest time is the night, one hears cries, help, there are some who call their mothers, no one answers, all these recitals of soldiers are stamped with the red badge of courage, a priest serving as an adjutant was superintending the digging of trenches close to the firing line on the aim, he had to expose himself for a space of three feet in going from one trench to another, in that instant a Mauser bullet struck him under the left eye, traversed the nostril, the top of the palate, the cheekbone and came out under the right ear. He felt the bullet only where it came out, but soon he fell, covered with blood and believed he was wounded to death. Then his courage returned, 
and he crawled into the trench. Comrades carried him to the ambulance at Ambleny, with bullets and saucepans raining about them from every direction. In time he was transferred to the American hospital at Noily. I'm only a little disfigured and condemned to a liquids, he told his friend the Abbe. In a few weeks I shall be cured and will return to the front. Abbe Klein tells the curious story of his love and his faithful dog. In one of the zigzag corridors connecting the trenches near ours the man was terribly wounded by a shell that killed all his companions and left him three quarters buried in the earth, with only the dead around him. He felt himself going to discouragement, to use the author's mild phrase, when his dog, which had never left him since the beginning of the war, arrived and began showing every sign of distress and affection. The wounded man told the author, it is not true that he dug me out, but he roused my courage. I commenced to free my arms, my head, the rest of my body. Seeing this, he began scratching with all his might around me, and then caressed me, licking my wounds. The lower part of my right leg was torn off, the left wounded in the calf, a piece of shell in the back, two fingers cut off, and the right arm burned. I dragged myself bleeding to the trench, where I waited an hour for the litter carriers. They brought me to the ambulance post at Roquelin Court, where my foot was taken off. Shoe and all, it hung only by a tendon. From there I was carried on a stretcher to Anzin, then in a carriage to another ambulance post, where they carved me some more. My dog was present at the first.